Hello, everybody. This is Joseph P. Farrell with news and views from the Nefarium on Thursday, June 25th, 2020. Can you believe it? We are already uh, halfway through the year. I mean, it's just flown by. Um, anyway, little housekeeping notice, and then we'll get right into this, because this article uh, is going about halfway to what I've been arguing over the past couple of, of years, really ever since the Fukushima disaster in a certain sense, uh, that Japan is one way or another going to be forced by circumstances to rearm. Uh, but we'll get back to that. Uh, the house cleaning is that tomorrow, of course, we have our, uh, our uh, European-African time zone vid chat for all of our members that live in Europe or Africa or those time zones, that will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time. As usual, I will be there early for pre-chat. We've had just a few uh, submissions. Get your questions, comments in, uh, folks, uh, if you can, because uh, tomorrow I'm, I'm planning, hopefully I'm starting on time, uh, we had uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a vid chat, afternoon vid chat that went quite long because there were a lot of submissions. So make sure you get your comments and questions in. So that will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time tomorrow, uh, which will be about 8 p.m. Uh, time in the United Kingdom and then whatever time zones in Europe or Africa that you're in after that. All right. This is, the, this is a very important article. Uh, it's... In my opinion, it's almost as important as the article I blogged about today, which was uh, Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin's article, uh, which if you haven't read that blog, go read it. Go read the article from uh, President Putin. It's very, very interesting. But anyway, this article is by a Mr. Brad Glosserman, who is uh, some sort of policy expert on Japan, on defense-related matters, uh, involving Japan and, for that matter, the wider uh, Pacific region. This article came out just three days ago, June 22, 2020, and the article is titled, Japan's Strike Options Assume New Urgency. As always, I'm going to pick out a few paragraphs here uh, and make clear why I'm not so much disagreed with him. I'm just approaching this from a slightly different point of view. But anyway, uh, let's get into this article. It's quite long. It's about three pages long when you, when you print it out. But it's very well written and very well ar uh, argued and reasoned. And it begins by noting the decision last week of Prime Minister Abe's government to suspend the deployment of the American anti-missile Aegis system by Japan. Okay, so that's the context of, of this article. It begins by saying, after last week's decision to suspend deployment of Aegis Ashore Missile Defense Systems, which is looking more like cancellation each day, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe said that Japan needs to discuss ways to strengthen its deterrence. Listen to that word. What he means, or more precisely, what he wants is not yet clear, and I want you to latch on to that because uh, any disagreements there are in the way we're assessing this, I think are in part due to that lack of clarity. 
But Abe is right to call for a conversation. Everybody's calling on a conversation on ways to strengthen Japan's national defense. The security environment continues to evolve, and Japan must think creatively about how it can address new threats and challenges. Japanese security planning occurs within two interrelated frames. Number one, the domestic political context and the alliance with the United States is number two. In the first, Japanese decision-making is constrained by Article 9 of the Constitution and an understanding that defense spending will not exceed 1% of Japan's gross domestic product. Abe chafes against both. Revision of Article 9 is one of his most cherished political objectives, and he has said that he will ignore the 1% spending limit if national defense requires additional funds. Defense budgets during his tenure have observed that ceiling, nevertheless. Skipping now. Still, threats to Japan are mounting. North Korea, the most immediate concern, has steadily grown more capable and formidable. Abe warned that Pyongyang's missile technology, which prompted the need for the Aegis Asura systems, has, quote, advanced since the time we introduced our missile defense systems, unquote. China is ever more ominous, too. It is a revisionist power, ambitious, aggrieved, and eager to right perceived historical wrongs. One expression of that intention is evident in the East China Sea, where Chinese vessels daily enter the contiguous zone surrounding the Shinkaku Islands, challenging Japan's claim to administrative control of the territory. Japan must be ready for more forceful efforts to reassert China's territorial claim. Abe and some other politicians and strategists argue that one way Japan can better deter adversaries, listen carefully, folks, is by developing and deploying a preemptive strike capability the ability to attack an enemy with missiles before it strikes. It is an appealing concept. Passivity in the face of a visible and growing danger is difficult to sustain, but interest in it has waxed and waned depending on the state of that threat and the political strength of the government. Now, I want to stop there and go back and remind you of the discussion that was being had both in some mainstream kind of scholarly uh, policy magazines and journals and so on, and also on the Internet, back when the Fukushima disaster occurred and you saw the reactors of the TEPCO uh, company blowing up uh, outside of, of Fukushima. And the response of many analysis at that time, and these, these were even in some uh, respected, respected British newspapers and journals and so on, and even some Japanese journalists, suspected that one reason the Japanese government reacted at the time as it did was that it was engaged in a very covert nuclear weapons program. Now, I've been saying for years, as many other people, I'm not the first one to say it, that Japan, like Germany, is one of those turnkey nuclear powers. They have long ago completed the nuclear fuel cycle. They have stockpiled a, a large quantity of, of 
nuclear fuel that could, under certain circumstances, be used in nuclear weapons, and that basically they are turnkey nuclear powers. In other words, we've got all the components for the bomb. All we need to do is assemble it, okay? So I suspect that lurking behind this, there's a longer development and probably a very covert one, all right? And again, you, you have to put yourself in the, in the position of the Japanese. They're facing China, they're facing North Korea, and they've got a, let's face it, a wobbly ally in the United States. And we're going to get back to that point. So I think that there is a possibility, a likelihood that the Japanese government itself has basically assembled all these pieces long ago. And now Abe's government, and this is kind of my personal reading on it, Abe's government is revealing this in slow stages. All right, that's my take. It's a personal one. I realize that there are not many uh, policy experts that would agree with that. But let me continue now back with Glosserman's article. Quote, a liberal Democratic Party panel endorsed the idea of a preemptive strike force in 2017 after a worrying series of Korean missile tests, but the breakthrough in relations between North Korea and the United States seemed to undercut the urgency of such a step. In the wake of the Aegis Ashore decision, the acquisition of offensive capabilities is again rising to the top of the agenda as Abe worries about the emergence of a, listen carefully, a security vacuum. Now, a security vacuum means, if you translate what, what Abe and, and Glosserman's words are saying, Abe's government is looking at its wobbly ally and saying, we cannot, over the long term, rely on that ally to protect us. That's basically what's being said here. I want you to latch onto that security vacuum phrase because it's going to form part of my analysis when we get done here with this article. I'm skipping several paragraphs at this point, and uh, I'm picking up where he is citing a, 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 an American security uh, policy expert. Jimbo identifies three rationales for a first strike capability. Number one, neutralizing an adversary's arsenal in advance which is virtually impossible given the size of North Korea's missile inventory and inhospitable terrain that allows Pyongyang to hide those weapons. Punishing an adversary, number two, after an attack, which requires Japan to have a huge arsenal of its own, again, unlikely. Now, please understand, a preemptive strike capability is a first strike capability. For Japan to have a retaliatory capability, in other words, the ability to respond to a first strike, let's say, by China or North Korea, would require a much larger inventory, one that would be so large that in the event of a first strike against Japan, some of its own missiles would survive. So in other words, the first strike capability enables Japan to, to build far fewer missiles. All right, so let's remember that Abe is and his government are talking about preemptive or first strike capability. <clears throat> Continuing uh, with that statement, 
punishing an adversary after an attack, which requires Japan to have a huge arsenal of its own, again, unlikely. And again, the unlikeliness here is not because Japan could not do that. It certainly has the economic power, and it certainly has the infrastructure to do it. It's the political will that's lacking, all right? And we'll get back to that. Or number three, damage limitation by which Japan could degrade an enemy's threat before it strikes and then use defenses to defeat the surviving missiles. He concludes that Japan's defense policy and budgetary constraints, the only viable option is the third idea. U.S. strategists concur. Brad Roberts, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear Policy and Missile Defense in the Obama administration, agrees that missile defenses aren't a complete solution to the missile threat, as they can be overwhelmed by an enemy willing to fire large numbers of missiles in a massive attack. Quote, counterattack capabilities contribute to deterrence as well, including so-called left-of-launch capabilities, that seek to disrupt attack by preemptive action. Whether, listen carefully, whether kinetic, in other words, we're not even talking anymore here, folks, about nuclear weapons. We're talking about rod of God stuff based in outer space. Whether kinetic or non-kinetic, meaning nuclear, Roberts concludes that the Japan-U.S. alliance needs an approximate mix of defensive and offensive capabilities to meet the missile threat. That mix should include more and better Japanese strike assets. Which brings us to the second frame for Japanese security planning. The Japan-U.S. alliance. Japan cannot do this alone. Even if Japan acquires some missiles, it will rely on U.S. intelligence for targeting in the vastly larger and more powerful U.S. missile arsenal to punish adversaries. While Abe was right to say that peace isn't something someone gives to you, to think that this portends an independent Japanese deterrent is mistaken. So in other words, you'll notice that the article is wobbling back and forth between the idea that this is going to be some sort of integrated American-Japanese defense and the idea that the Japanese perceive the United States as a wobbly ally. And, you know, that reference to the security vacuum that we were talking about earlier. So in other words, there's some real waffling going on in the article, and I suspect that the source of it is a, an inability to look at what the Japanese government in its secret councils, let's, let's put it that way, might be thinking. So one more paragraph here. Once the U.S. was the preeminent military power that could and had to extend deterrence to its allies, that golden age of military superiority has passed and strategists and military planners in Washington and Tokyo and Seoul and Canberra and other allied capitals must rethink what is required to ensure that adversaries are deterred. It is time to reassess foundational principles of defense and security, appreciate and incorporate a new premium on cooperation and coordination, and, listen carefully, recalibrate burdens and responsibilities, and roles, and missions, unquote. So in other words, 
once you start talking about recalibrating burdens, that means Japan, you're going to have to assume a lot more of it. <laughs> okay. And by the way, you too in, in South Korea and Australia. All right. Now, I, I suspect that, and I have suspected, and I've gone on record as saying this, you know, for, for quite a few years now, that the Abe government is playing a very careful diplomatic game. And my reasoning is, is that from a Japanese point of view, as they look at waning American power, and let's just stop and put yourself in Japan's shoes now, watching America melt down, is this a reliable ally? So in other words, even the domestic situation in the United States itself is going to translate to long-term planning in Japan as a need for Japan to be able to defend itself. So in the meantime, the game that they are playing, and I've been arguing this for several years, is, yeah, we will cooperate with the United States and continue to cooperate with the United States and share or take on a greater recalibrated burden of our own defense. But rest assured, I think that you have to include worst-case scenario planning here. And the Japanese aren't fools, and they're going to be doing this. The worst-case scenario plan is how do we defend ourselves if, for any reason, the United States should collapse or that it, it would be uh, severely or seriously weakened in its ability to provide for Pacific defense. So in other words, what I'm arguing is, what pardon me, what Mr. Glosserman is arguing here is a kind of short-term to mid-term analysis. I'm arguing that in the long term, which is the way the Japanese are going to be thinking, and the Chinese as well, that in the long-term analysis, they're thinking eventually, sooner or later, American power may collapse or at least be severely weakened and we are going to have to become primary principles in the alliance structure if that survives, all right? So I think worst-case scenario planning here is, is the ticket. Now, the other thing here that's important to notice is that reference to kinetic weapons, because there's only two kinds of strategic offensive weapons, the nuclear missile that we're all familiar with and the rod of God technology. And... I think the mention of that is very significant because the Japanese, as you know, have their own independent space program. They have sent very sophisticated satellites with very sophisticated sensing equipment, not only to the moon, but to various asteroids. That same technology, my friends, can also provide them with spy satellite capability. So the arguments within this article that they would still be reliant on the United States for intelligence, uh, I think is uh, a bit overstated. There's no doubt in my mind that probably Japan has already got some spy satellites up there, which they could drastically expand. And you would need those kind of assets if in turn you are planning to develop space-based kinetic weapons with a strategic offensive preemptive strike or first strike capability. 
So I think I think reading between the lines here, you're looking at the public disclosure, as it were, of what may be the strategic and defense thinking. <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> defense thinking in Japan. It's going to be a long time before we see any of this manifest itself. But rest assured, I think within the next five to ten years, you're going to see some drastic changes in Japanese defense policy. This is something that is going to continue to be a part of the debate in Japan whether or not Shinzo Abe's government survives, and depending on how long it survives. This is going to be a major theme of Japanese politics and international relations and diplomacy for quite a few years. And I, the bottom line here, folks, is the geopolitical pressures on Japan are not going to go away, and they are going to be eventually forced to rearm in a very, very significant major way. Um, and, you know, I don't expect that... Uh, there will be much opposition from Russia. Okay, that's the other player on the scene over there. Anyway, that's it. Um, Christopher Neufeld in the chat room says the Japanese space, te space technology, pardon me, is in the 1980s even going to the toilet they have to report to the Americans. That may be. I don't know. Uh, my impression is that their space technology is a little bit more advanced. But if you have some articles or links you can send to me, I'd appreciate it. Anyway, don't forget we have the vid chat tomorrow at um, 2 p.m. I'll be in there probably early, uh, a couple hours at least early um, for our normal pre-chat and so on. But please, we haven't got many questions sent in yet. So if you, if you want to be in the chat and uh, share comments and questions tomorrow. Please get your your vid chat questions and comments in. For those of you who are members, also don't forget we have the members dialogues. If you want a one on one dialogue with me, uh, send in your uh, comments or questions that you'd like to talk about, and we'll go ahead and do that. Anyway, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, there there probably won't be a blog tomorrow because I spent a lot of time trying to write uh, that analysis of of uh, President Putin's article, very important article that, that he just published. But anyway, we will do the vid chat tomorrow. Uh, there are storms predicted for my area of the country tomorrow. So if I'm not there, it's because there's a power outage. <laughs> so anyway, that's it. We'll see you on the flip side, everybody. Bye-bye and God bless.